Hey everyone, welcome to Grace Community Church of Willow Street's podcast. If you have any questions or want to learn how to be more engaged with our church, check us out online at gccws.net, or you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's message, and we are praying that it leads you into a growing relationship with Jesus. with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you as men and women who have chosen to set aside this time and worship you right now. Pray that we can calm our hearts and still our minds as we come to you in prayer. Father, we thank you for the Whitakers and the ministry that they have in Spain, for um, the opportunities they have to share your truth, to share the gospel. Uh, We pray for the um, retreats that they'll be leading the uh, men that they're going to be impacting to raise up as leaders in their community to impact those around them for Christ. Uh, Lord, as we just heard, um, there's a small number of Christian believers in Spain, and I pray that that would grow, that um, people would rise up and want to share your truth with those around them. Lord, we pray for the upcoming community week here at GCC as well that we might not wait till then to start thanking you and celebrating your faithfulness. God, uh, it's a joy to be able to be a part of a place that has this new space, and we praise you for your faithfulness through that, for the opportunity we have to continue sharing the gospel uh, from Willow Street. Lord, we pray for opportunities to respond this morning to you in worship as we um, come into this time together. May our focus be wholly you and not ourselves or anything else. We do ask this morning, God, for blessing in the lives of those who are dealing with the grief and sorrow of loss, families who have lost, lost loved ones, siblings, parents, children. God, it's so hard to face and so hard to understand at times what the purpose is. But Lord, we know ultimately through everything, through death, through loss, you can be glorified, and I pray that that's known and seen quickly for these families as they experience this grief. God, we pray right now for unity amongst believers around the world and a revival of truth across the nation that we live in and nations around the world. Forgive us for our selfish pursuits and our arrogance, Lord, for um, constantly putting ourselves above you and your desires for us. So often we forget the critical need we have for you in our lives and for your healing, for your love, for your provision. Um, God, may we stop forgetting that. Help us to tear down the idols that we've put in our lives and to lift you up. We adore you. You are great and you are powerful. You're gracious, you're loving, and you're patient. God, we love you. And we pray these things together with one voice in the strong name of Jesus Christ. We say amen. Thank you, Pastor David. I invite you this morning to open up your Bibles to James chapter 4. It's in James chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 13 to 17 as we continue in our series called Making Faith Work. If you have not been able to be a part of this series for the past few weeks, we encourage you to check us out online um, at gccws.net where you can go back and rewatch the services. Making Faith Work. Well, I have some questions for you this morning. What hinders a growing Christian? What causes the faithful to falter? What stops a growing church, what can wreck an effective pastor? What derails ministry, delays movements, and destroys lives? Is it lack of resources? Is it lack of vision? Is it song selection or preaching or teaching? 
Is it anger or drunkenness or greed or sexual immorality? And the answer would be no. No, all those things are mere mosquito bites compared to the real issue that can halter and stop ministry. It is simply this, pride. Say that with me, pride. It's pride. What can destroy your relationships, destroy your friendships? What can cause people to not want to be around you? What causes the most tension in the workplace? Is it salary? Is it communication? Lack of that? Is it scheduling? Or is it pride, ego, arrogance, an unchecked conceitedness? Friends, pride delays, derails, and can destroy our lives and the lives that are around us. Pride as one author has pointed out and discovered, will cost you everything, but leave you with nothing. Einstein thought the only thing more dangerous than ignorance was arrogance. C.S. Lewis wisely wrote that pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or common sense. Jesus tells us, that an angel turned into a devil because of pride and was cast down from heaven. And Solomon warns us that the Lord detests all the proud of heart. And be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Pride is simply this. It is when we live in a distorted reality resulting in an, un, in an inflated identity. Pride is when we live in a distorted reality resulting in an inflated identity. Distorted reality because what you think is, is not. In an inflated identity, who you think you are is not. Pride, friends, has got to go. There is no room if we look at the scriptures for proud people in the kingdom of God. And so we turn to James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, where James gives us this warning. He says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Two observations here in this passage about the proud person. I'm gonna go through these quite quickly. The first is this. The proud person presumes to know about life. That is, they presume to know how life works and how life can work for you. They know all there is about life. Douglas Moo in his commentary says that James here creates a fictional character, the merchant. 
The merchant, he has no name. We have no real identity other than the fact that we know he has the ability to travel, make money, and bring in a reward. James creates this character. Why? Because this character, the merchant, represents the person who presumes to know about life. They presume to know how to succeed at life. And yet John Piper in his commentary on this very passage also points out that there are six things the merchant presumes. The first is this. The merchant presumes to be in charge of when they will do things. You notice that? He starts off by saying what in verse 13? Today or tomorrow. They're in charge. They know when it's going to happen. They also presume to know their movements. We will go, he says. He doesn't just presume to know about when or movement. He also presumes to know his own destination, to this city and to that city, to this town, to that town, to this village, to that village. He presumes to also know the duration of his work when he gets there. He says he will spend a year there. And not just the duration of his work, he also presumes to know what kind of work he will be doing. Because he makes the statement, we're going to carry on business. But the last thing that the merchant presumes really reveals his heart, his proud, arrogant, and ego-driven heart. He presumes to know how successful he will be. We will make a profit. We will make a profit. Now, it's interesting, when you look at the merchant here described in James chapter 4, you compare the merchant to Abraham, who's also mentioned in the letter of James. He doesn't seem, you know, all that different, does he? Abraham, in some sense, was a merchant. He was sent out by God. He traveled to this land and that land, right? The only difference between the merchant mentioned in James 4 and the father, Abraham, mentioned in James chapter 2, is one clear distinction. James mentions this in James chapter 2, verse 23, when he says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see, the distinction between the merchant and Abraham is Abraham was a man of faith. The merchant presumes to know about life, but he also does not have faith. Because his presumption about life also leads us to the second thing about proud people. They presume to know about God. And the presumption about God is you don't need to put your faith in God. It's interesting, as you look at this verse, this description of this merchant, James says something in verse 15 that is very interesting. Look what he says. He says, he says instead, you ought to say, this is what we ought to say, if the Lord wills. You notice verse 13 is what the merchant says. Verse 15 is what we ought to say. Major difference. The, the merchant presumes to know about life, and he presumes to know about God, and he has no room in his vocabulary for saying things such as silly as going, well, if the Lord wills. Why? Because his idea of God is that God does not care about the details of our life. So what in the world would we say if the Lord wills? The merchant would say, God doesn't care what you do and doesn't care how you do it. 
God is outside the boundaries of our choices. God and, and his will are not a factor in our plans, so why even consider them? You see, the merchant presumes to know about God. And his presumption is that God doesn't care. It's interesting, that kind of mindset, that kind of worldview is what we call deism. Deism is the idea that God created the heavens and the earth, and he set everything into motion, like a watchmaker would build a watch, turn it on, and then let it work. And that's how the merchant views life. God has set everything into motion, God has turned it on, and then he backed away. And so the merchant just says, well, we're going about doing business and we don't need faith. We don't need to observe God. We know about God. And the sad thing is his presumptions are what? They are, as we've already said, a distorted reality that resulted in an inflated identity. And there's three problems with pride. The first is it will inflate you. It'll make you puffed up, big-headed. You know, like a balloon with too much air, you have too much pride and eventually you will pop. You know, I don't know if you realize this, the human body is very interesting the way we were designed. We were designed for oxygen. We were designed for water. We were designed for food, particularly Lancaster County food. Amen? Amen. This past week, someone brought me some venison scrapple. Now, that's a real manly thing to eat, right, men? We kill deer, we make scrapple out of it. Yes! And now, I mean, women, you're really growing in the whole, you know, killing deer thing, too. So maybe that's what's growing. This is a really womanly thing to do, too. I think all of us should eat venison scrapple. Amen? They, I didn't get as many amens on that one. We were designed, God knit us together for oxygen, for water, for food. Interestingly enough, our bodies were also designed for joy, for peace. We were designed for humility. We were not designed for pride. Pride kills us. We can't handle it. And so interesting enough, you see that the merchant here is, inflates himself. But the second thing you do is you notice that pride also seeks control. One of the questions I asked myself when I first started studying this passage was, why is the merchant going out anyway? I mean, can't he do business in his own area? Why go out? And I guess the only rational reason is that he wants to compete in an open market. No big deal about that. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a business and saying, let's take the business and see what else we can do with it. But as you think further into the, what the merchant says and what James writes here in James chapter four, you realize there's all kinds of problems with what this guy is doing. Because it's about control. He wants to compete and he wants to compare himself to other merchants. So thus, we will make a profit. And the shame of it is that as a merchant, he competes what? For things that moth and rust are gonna eat away and destroy anyway. It's not gonna last. And he compares himself to man's standard and not God's standard of what is a profit, what is an income. You may be tempted to think that the merchant's issue is greed in this passage, but it's not greed. 
If you look at verse 16, we discover that the merchant makes boasts. And it's arrogant, and it is in his arrogance, James writes, he makes boast about his arrogant schemes. You see, this merchant wants to compete, and so he chooses to compare himself to others who do not make a profit so that he can ultimately be in control. And that's the real heart of pride. It seeks to look down on others. You see, I have done better than you. I'm better than you. I'm not any better than you. I'm the best. This is the heart behind this merchant. He wants to not only just be in the market, he wants to control the market. He doesn't want to be just recognized as being in business. The merchant has to be the best in business. And so he schemes and is proud of his profit. But the real problem of pride is not an inflated self. It's not this controlling attitude that you see in proud people. It is simply this. The real problem of pride is that it's hard to diagnose. It's easy for me to see pride in you. It's hard for me to see pride in myself. And that's the real gut punch. Many times we can easily want to do surgery on somebody else's soul. But do you ever want to do surgery on your own? Can you see your pride? Can you remove your pride? Proverbs 16, 18 says this, first pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. If we do not learn to do surgery with our pride and to remove it from ourselves, there will be a crash. It will be a great crash. It'll be a fall faster than you could ever imagine. What hinders ministry? What derails movements? What stops people that are, that are doing really well in life? It's pride. And the problem is, it's hard to self-diagnose pride. Tim Keller says this, pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. Hear this. It slowly kills you without you ever knowing it. Getting as arrogant as the merchant that James describes here in verses 13 to 17, it takes time. This isn't like a one-day minor moment of pride. No, if you have a minor moment of arrogance, you should probably repent and turn and say, man, that was dangerous. But if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, being proud and self-puffed up and controlling of others and your environment, and that's your lifestyle, and that's your worldview, then just know it's coming to an end. It's interesting. James is talking about a lifestyle. He's talking about a worldview here in James chapter four. He's talking about a way of thinking. And so the, the challenge for us this morning is how in the world do we get outside this way of thinking? How do we stop this? If we know that this is going to ultimately kill us slowly, then what do we do next? Very simply, we come back to doing the good. As Christians, we were called to do the good. 
You notice what James writes in verse 17. Sometimes people don't realize what verse 17 is in relation to verses 13 through 16. You go, is 17 just kind of just hanging out there as a dangler? No, look at verse 17. James describes this merchant, this proud merchant, and then he says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, hear this, it is sin for them. Reminds us of James chapter 2, verse 8, where James writes, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, hear this, this is what he says, you are doing right. We have to get back to doing what is right, what is good. How do we do that? How do we get back to that kind of disposition, that kind of mindset? Well, James gives us two ways. Interestingly enough, the first might seem very basic, but it is very profound. Ask for permission. Ask for permission. We have lost an elementary tool that God is giving us to simply ask the creator God for permission. It's interesting enough, in James chapter four, he starts off by talking about this merchant who, who makes all these presuppositions about life. And then in verse 14, what does James do here? He describes for us, hear this, what really life is about. Look at verse 14. He says, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is life? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It then vanishes. You see, this proud person doesn't understand the significance of life, the value of life. They think they can do what they want when they want to do it. And yet James calls them to the carpet and says, what is your life? Before they can answer, James answers for them. And he says, life is like a mist, it's like a vapor. In other words, it's like the breath off your mouth on a cold winter morning, it's the swirl of smoke off of a fire, the steam off of your coffee cup. And so James says, what is life? It is short. And it is so fragile. It is short and it's fragile. And listen to this, you can't capture it. You're not in control of it. You're at a cup of coffee and then try to grab the steam off of the top of the cup of coffee. You can't hold it in your hand. In the same way that you and I don't hold our lives in our hands, our lives are held in the hands of God the Father. They're not our control. Much like we can't control the steam off of a cup of coffee, we cannot control our own destinies. And yet this person has proudly found themselves saying what? Today or tomorrow, we're gonna do this. And James says, you don't even know about life. You don't even know. Have we ever considered the simple rule of asking for permission? God, what do you think? God, what should we do? How, how would you like us to do it? God, we've observed something happening here. What would you have us do in that situation? You know, there's a story that I find very interesting in the Bible. It is a story around the disciples. 
And the disciples are sent by Jesus to do something they're very familiar with. They're sent to go out on a boat. Now, majority of the disciples, we don't know about all of them, were, were merchants. They were tradesmen. They were fishermen. I mean, going out on a boat was like second nature to them. Sure, we can do that. We understand how to operate a boat. We understand what water does, and we understand how to get across it. No problem. Jesus sends them out. The only issue is that when life smacks you in the face, sometimes you don't know how to get through. Sometimes you don't know how to go. Sometimes your plans get halted and stopped. And so the disciples find themselves on a lake and there's a storm that rises up and they're scared to death and they can't even get across a three-mile lake. These are professional merchants. You'd think this would be easy for them. And yet in the midst of their storm, they find that Jesus walks out on the water. And this is what Matthew writes in Matthew 14. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now, I just want you to know that I would have never said that because I'm a tough guy. I'd have been like, yeah, no, no big deal. I mean, we're cool. We're cool. Everybody stay calm. You would have been scared too, okay? Matthew goes on, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, the next thing that comes out of Peter's mouth is so profound because the next thing that would have come out of my mouth is, Jesus, how are you walking on water? Jesus, can you teach us how to walk on water so that we can market it, put a label on it, and charge $9.99 so other people can walk on water? Now, the next thing that comes out of Peter's mouth is one of the most key principles for anybody who wants to do anything successful in life. Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. Most people miss this verse. You see, they just think that Pete just jumps out of the boat and starts walking. But he asks for permission. If you want me to come, then you tell me to come to you. Is it okay, Lord, if our church does this? Is it okay if we spend money on this? Is it okay if we invest in this? What do you think, Jesus? You see, so many people read this passage, they think the profound part is found in verse 29 when Jesus says, come, and he said to Peter, and Peter got down out of the boat and walked on water and came toward Jesus. The most profound part of this story is that a grown man who's a fisherman trained at sea would look at a God that he does not quite fully understand and would ask permission. When was the last time we ever stopped and asked God for permission? That's the humble disposition. That's the person who says, God, you hold my life in your hands. You are the one who controls the breath of my lungs. You sustain me. You keep me. You know where my destiny will go. Can I come? When was the last time you asked God for permission for what you're doing or what you want to do? Secondly, and this may be harder for the men in the room than it is for the women, but ask for direction. Now, I'm not talking about Google Maps, you know, where do we go for lunch after this, God? You know, how do I get there? She said, go right. I think we should go left. You know, I'm not talking about that. 
I'm talking about the, the kind of direction of where is my life going? There are so many people, it doesn't matter whether you're 18 or 35, there are so many people that feel lost and without purpose and direction in this life. And their only way out of that is to turn to themselves and try to make something happen. It's interesting, the proud, they presume to know about life, they presume to know about God, and yet what do you find out about God in James chapter four? You find out that we are sinners, verses seven through 10. We are mere sinners and he is the judge, verse 12. James reminds us that there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who can save and can destroy. But you, who are you, James writes in verse 12, to judge your neighbor? James calls Christians to ask the profound question, we need direction from the one who holds the compass for life. And so he says, you ought to say this. Look at verses 14, I mean, sorry, 15 and 16. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live, get that, and do this or that. It's interesting here. James says, if you really trust the Lord, then you will ask the Lord and you will simply say, if it is your will, then we'll do this. There is this, God, what is your direction? What is, what is the way you want us to go? Because if you agree with it, Lord, then we will do this. Then we will do that. Listen, there's no issue, by the way, with making a profit, okay? There's no issue with earning money. The issue comes with where your heart is. Where's your disposition? Have you considered to ask what the Lord's will is for your business? God, what do we do with our excess profit? You know, we made the money we needed to make this year. We budgeted for it. What would you like us to do with our excess? We have it. My shareholders and my, my other partners want us to spend it on ourselves. What would you like us to do with that? What is your will? What's your direction? Now remember, that statement, if it is the Lord's will, is not some kind of magical sentence, by the way. It's not like the God we're demonstrating to you that we really love you, even though we really don't, but we said it, we did, you know, because we used the magical words. And it's not something you have to use at the beginning of every sentence. You know, if I go up to Emily over here and I said, Emily, where are you gonna go for lunch? She's like, well, if the Lord wills, I'm gonna go out to lunch with that guy over there and he's gonna pay, you know? It's, it's not a sentence you have to use at the beginning of every sentence. You can simply just answer the question, well, I hope to go out to lunch and I hope he pays. And Emily's gonna hurt me after this sermon, but you get the idea. You know, the reason why James puts this in here is because it really is in our heart if it's the Lord's will. This is what we think. This is once we take off the outer clothing and, you, and if you were to look into my soul, you would see that I have a soul that says, I trust the Lord's will far more than I trust my own. And so yes, in my heart, I say if it's the Lord's will, but look what the proud person says in verse 16. They don't boast about the Lord's will. What do they boast about? 
as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. And then James says, all that kind of boasting is what? It's evil. Why? Because evil wants nothing to do with the will of God. Evil doesn't care about the will of God. Evil doesn't give a rip what God thinks or God wants. Evil is as it is, opposed to God. You know, and here's the thing. You can, you can cover over your words with all kinds of Christian sayings. You know, you can put Jesus' name at the beginning of every sentence and Jesus' name at the end of every sentence. God knows your heart. Because sometimes that's what we do in church. We cover things over with Christian language and we don't realize that the God of heaven is looking at your heart. One of the passages in the Bible that scares me the most, and there's a lot of them, but it's found in Matthew chapter seven. This is one I wrestle with. Jesus is there and you get the image that Jesus is there and there is a judgment that is being passed and there's people that are coming into the line to be judged by the real judge. And, and they're fully expecting to be led into the kingdom of heaven. They, they think they got it secured. And yet, what do you realize? When they get to the line, Jesus kind of stops them. Chapter seven, verses 21 to 23 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but hear this, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in, and in your name drive out demons and, and what, in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. How do you become an evildoer? You know, you notice what the, the people say to Jesus, did we not do these things in your name? We did them, but we used Jesus afterwards. Wasn't that enough? And Jesus says, even though you were performing miracles and casting out demons, it was evil. It was evil because of this. They really wanted nothing to do with God. They didn't ask God, can we cast out demons and perform miracles? It was all up to them. Which is why it's so important that you ask God, not just for permission, but that we ask God for direction. Is this what you would have us do? Are these the kind of ministries you would want us to be involved with? It's a position of humility, not saying, God, we're going to go do this in our own power and our own strength, and then to find ourselves at the last day standing before the King of Kings and then trying to say, listen, we know that you deserve to have us in your kingdom. Look how great we are. And Jesus says, that's not how people enter to my kingdom. People enter my kingdom because they realize how sinful they are and how much I have done for them. And they've taken their faith and they've placed it in me. And I have shown them grace. 
Proud people want to perform before God. Humble people just realize that if God doesn't do it, it really won't get done. Have you asked God lately for permission? Have you asked him for direction in your life? This would be a great moment if we would all take the time to consider that. I encourage you to bow your heads now with me and close your eyes. Even if you're an usher or a seater, you're on the worship team, just pause where you are and close your eyes. These are the moments where we have to stand before a holy and living God and get real with him. Peter told the church, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Peter told the church, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but he shows favor to the humble. Paul also wrote to the Philippian church and he said this to the Philippian church. He said, one day every knee will, will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I wanna tell you this morning as your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, if you have never, if you've never Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Today would be the day to do it. What hope do you have for tomorrow? Those aren't your days to determine. God would want us to search our hearts right now. He would want us to think Have I become proud? Do I think I'm in control? Do I think I have it all together? Do I think I'm better than so-and-so because look at me, look at my title, look at my status, look at my salary. And yet none of that compares when we stand in the presence and the glory of an almighty and wonderful God. What would we bring you, Jesus, but yet our rags? And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would search our hearts now and cleanse us that we would walk humbly in your presence in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message and choosing to spend some time with us today. To get more information about Grace Community Church, our service times, and our location, check out our website at gccws.net.